Well, thank you to uh, Scott and to uh, our musicians uh, for leading us so helpfully. Now, when uh, I go on holiday every year, um, I often come up with a lot of uh, new ideas, which aren't really new. They're just the same ideas expressed in a different way. And uh, I think as we look forward to another church year, um, the most uh, powerful and visionary thing that we can do is to keep on going and to keep each other keeping on going as we promised to our new members. Two of the emphases that I'm really keen as a minister that we are clear on in our minds and in our hearts, and when we talk about the heart in the Bible, we're not talking about a love heart. We're talking about our, our will, our emotions, our being, the sort of center of all that we are. I just mentioned love heart, and the two of them just looked at each other. <laughs> you shouldn't sit in the front row. And two big emphases that I'm really keen that we have clear in our minds. One is the reality of spiritual warfare or conflict. The dynamic of the supernatural that we live in and exist in as a church and as individuals. And the other, and we're going to try and trail this sometime in the next month or so, but then turn back to it later in the year, is I'm really keen to preach a series uh, where the title, uh, like uh, Searching for Christian Joy. One of the areas, perhaps, in our church's life, perhaps because of our history, perhaps because of me, that might be more elusive to us than it should be, is Christian joy. Just struck me when these folks made their promises. What extraordinary things they were saying have happened in their lives. Imagine as you look to eternity, you will spend every day of all eternity with the risen Christ, doing what God created humanity to do. There will be no death, nor sin, nor sickness, nor crying, nor pain, nor tears, nor worry. These are extraordinary things. And the verdict that Jesus Christ will give to us when we stand physically before him on judgment day, forgiven, welcome, my child, we can know as we sit here now, that's extraordinary. And I'd love us to capture something more of the joy that it is to be a Christian. So we'll come back to that over the year. Now, for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off in Ephesians last uh, term. Last term, we looked at Ephesians on Sunday nights, 
And we got as far as halfway through chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. We kind of went down the gears when we got to that uh, passage. And I want to return to chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, this extraordinary passage on spiritual warfare and the armor of God, and to take it uh, slowly. Let's read it, and then I'll tell you how we're going to study it. Now, there are a couple of sermons already on this. They'll go back onto uh, the uh, website as our current series, and it might be helpful for you to listen to the two we did last term. So Paul writes in Ephesians 6, verse 10, finally, and that word doesn't mean postscript, it means after everything else I've said, listen to this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. There's an extraordinary statement. This is to you. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of the might of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's a bit scary. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The word wrestle means hand-to-hand combat. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, humans, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we're engaged with as Christians and as a church. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The evil day simply means the last days between Christ's coming and his return. And having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Now, that is not the kind of Bible passage you want a vague and general understanding of. 
It won't do simply to acknowledge that spiritual warfare is real in some kind of vague way and that the Lord has given us in the armour and weapons stuff to engage in that spiritual warfare. This passage isn't to be understood as some kind of vague sense that there's supernatural stuff going on and that we have supernatural resources to deal with it. We need to understand exactly what we're up against. We need to understand what the tactics of the devil are. We need to understand why he is so concerned to oppose a living gospel church. We need to understand as we plant Redeemer just what's going on in the supernatural realm. And we need to understand day by day in our ordinary lives, which are extraordinary in the eyes of God, what we are up against. Now, we've got to consider, though, chapter 6, verses 20 to 20, in the context of the letter as a whole. Now, you'll see that as the first point on the sheet. Our identity as Christians and as a church makes spiritual warfare inevitable. Now, just let me reassure you, I'm not going to go over this background uh, ground more than uh, today, but we do need to get our heads around this to get uh, into it. It's a great illustration, this too, of when you turn to a passage like Ephesians 6, you've got to have one foot in the rest of the letter. Because Paul writes Ephesians 6 after he's written Ephesians. It makes a lot of sense, but it's very easy to miss that. So who are you? Who are we as Christians? Just flip back to chapter 1 in the letter. Just to have a glance down, we'll not read it. Time doesn't permit that. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 14 is an extraordinary catalogue of how each one of you, if you are a clear Christian, and you are a clear Christian if Jesus Christ is your Saviour and your Lord, and you are able in your mind and heart to say, I do and they are, to these questions. Extraordinary list of blessings. You have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Your life, your little life, my little life, is to the praise of the glory of God. You don't believe that, do you? And the devil whispers in your heart, don't be daft. This is you. You're nothing. You're nothing. Let me tell you who you are. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You were chosen from eternity to eternity. You're loved. Someone has died for you. You're adopted. 
Your life is a testimony to the glorious grace of God. You are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are one on whom grace and wisdom have been lavished, one to whom the purposes of God have been revealed, and a glorious, glorious inheritance awaits you because you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit when you believed. That's who you are. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. Surely that's for special Christians. It's for every Christian. That's who you are. Who were you? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of this air. You were dead. Dead. You went to church, perhaps. But your mind and heart were dead. God has made you alive. His spirit lives in you. You're his child. And just note in chapter 2 there, you once lived in the dominion of the prince of this world, that is Satan, but God has rescued you from his domain. So that's who you are as an individual Christian. What about who you are or who we are as a church? When Ephesians talks about the church, it's talking about local churches. It's really important when we hear the word church in the New Testament. Almost all of the time, it's talking about local churches, communities of faith scattered all over the world. So don't think of institutions or stuff that's birthed out of Christendom or moments of history. Think of local churches scattered all over the world. Who are we as a local church? Who are you as a Christian? Well, you are a recipient of all these blessings. You once lived in darkness, but now you're in light. And God in his grace has put something into your heart that wants you to seek out other Christians. Stand up here and say, I will and I do. And I love them. And I want to grow, and I need them to grow. And they need me to grow. And we want to be a community that is transformed and Christian, living in this world as a light, as a star. Notice I've said that's what we want to do. Yes, it's what God calls us to do. But I expect that most of us most of the time, not all of the time, want to come to church. 
Now look at chapter 3, verse 10. It's a key verse in the letter about who we are as a church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, this local church, Chalmers Church or Redeemer Church, or the church you are from, wait for it, you're going to say, no, we're not. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Through this local church, the multifaceted or multicolored, manifold wisdom of God, wisdom of Almighty God, all that God knows, all that God purposes for salvation, for now and for eternity. How do you see that? You see it by walking into a local church. Surely not. What is happening in this room? Well, the practical stuff in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, we're united. I'd love us to be more disparate than we are, but we are much more disparate than we think. We just would not get on. But we are united. There are 350 of us. And we're not facing a major blow-up. That's impossible. Unless you had rules, or contracts, or sanctions. We have nothing. Just forgiveness, and love, and Christ. And there is nowhere on earth like that We are united, second half of chapter four. We are growing up into maturity by speaking the truth in love. What goes on after the service? We used to talk about the weather. I keep making a joke about that. Please don't talk about the weather. And I don't think we really do all that much. We speak the truth in love. We encourage each other. We grow up in maturity. Here we are on a Sunday morning thinking about spiritual warfare. And then on into chapter 4, part 2, and chapter 5. The new life we live in Christ. We walk in love. We walk wisely. We love one another. It is extraordinary extraordinary, supernatural, what this group of people is. And it is opposed. How do we know? Go back to chapter 3, verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Who does Chalmers witness to? Immediately, we default to answer, and not wrongly, to this community, to this city. Who does Redeemer witness to? Immediately, we answer to the community where it is in the southwest of the city. But who else do we witness to? What's Paul's emphasis in Ephesians? 
Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's according to the eternal purposes of God. Who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Who is Chalmers this morning as we sit here, united, growing under the word and in the spirit to spiritual maturity, struggling as we are to walk in godliness, love, speak the truth in love? Who is that a witness to? Chapter 6. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Chapter 6, verse 12, and Paul wants us to go back, to flick our Bibles back, to change our minds, to go in our hearts to chapter 3, verse 10. We are witnessing this morning by our very presence, by our very existence to all that is evil in the world. So spiritual warfare is inevitable for a Christian. Spiritual warfare is inevitable for a living uh, church. Now, we might conclude this is all a bit over the top. You might conclude this is all a bit scaremongering. After all, there are lots of churches and Christians that don't seem to be engaging or experiencing spiritual warfare or difficulty or struggles in their life. What might, would my answer to that be? Well, I think there are seasons when things are easier for us. God blesses us with that. Some of you, I've been really praying hard that when you've been on holiday, that would be a season of real protection for you. And it does my heart no end of good when you come back and say, it was great. God is kind, he's good to us. But if we're not experiencing spiritual opposition in our lives or in our church's life, then what, what can we conclude in the face of Ephesians, the, the letter in the New Testament that gives us as clear as crystal the doctrine or what it's like to be in a church. Not like Timothy and said, what's it like to structure yourself as a church? What's it like supernaturally to be a church? That's Ephesians. Either, either our lives as Christians are just not distinctive. We're not wrestling, struggling, growing. And the devil has nothing much to go for. Or as a Christian church, we're just not on the front foot with the gospel in evangelism. We're not speaking the truth in love after services to one another. We're not catching someone's eye in church and we see that they're upset and we follow them up in the week. We're just not doing any of that kind of stuff. We're not going to our small groups. We're not going to church and be careful of legalism. It's not about that. And the devil has nothing to go at. And life becomes easier and we become complacent and the months pass and the years pass. And we just drift. 
Just let me pause there and go forward to term three or term two when we do this series on joy. If we are like that as a church, not engaged in spiritual warfare, then I warrant you that we will not be experiencing either Christian joy. We will not be experiencing anything in the gospel that is sharp and dynamic. Or if you're not experiencing any of this stuff in your life as a Christian ever, then you've got to ask the question, my Christian. The Bible does not speak about unusual Christians. It speaks about normal Christians. And I want to encourage you as pastor, and Roger would stand here and say just the same to you, if you are unsure as to whether or not you are a Christian, if you sit Sunday by Sunday and you think that the Bible, not the preacher, but the Bible is talking about somebody else, then talk with us. Sort it out. Don't sit silent on it. Now, our identity as a Christians and as a church makes spiritual warfare inevitable. And uh, we're way behind as always, but um, we've got a few weeks. Um, I want you to keep encouraging us as preachers. I want you to tell us if you think we indulge up here in spending too long on something. And I want you to encourage us if you think we spend too short on something. So do we bounce over stuff so we don't actually really get our heads around it? I mean, you could do worse this afternoon to go home and to read this again and to actually really talk and pray together with our spouses if we're married or in our families or on our own, just to, that God would impress on us the reality of the spiritual dynamic that's going on rather than clutter us up with 84 points. Now, if we as Christians and as a church, who we are make spiritual warfare inevitable, we need to be vigilant yet confident and strong in the strength of the Lord's might, putting on the full armor of God. We need to be vigilant. Of course we need to be vigilant. Question, I thought Jesus Christ defeated Satan at the cross. He did. But Satan fights on until Christ returns. In the summer on holiday, we had a very memorable day on the Normandy beaches, Omaha Beach, and the American Cemetery, and the museum in Conn, extraordinary, moving. Now, the 6th of June, 1944, and the two months that followed, the tide turned in the war. It became clear to everybody who would win. And yet some of the bloodiest and fiercest battles followed, like the Battle of the Bulge. And that's the reality in a spiritual dynamic. Until we are safely at home with Jesus, the devil may not be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ, but he will try his damnest, literally. The devil will try his best to tempt you with temptation, to confuse you about sin to keep you on the edges of things. 
and the devil will do his very best to make Redeemer fail. Fall out. Disunite. Redeemer is a church, if you're here visiting, that Chalmers is about to, to plant. We need to be vigilant. The devil is defeated, but he is not yet disarmed. Yet confident. I've often said up here that as Christians, we need to see that the devil prowls around more than we think. No, the devil is not behind every door. Oh, yes, he is. I think that's the wrong emphasis. I wonder if we are clear on that as a church in Chalmers, that we are up against spiritual opposition. Perhaps our history tells us that. What we need is confidence, confidence in the Lord, confidence in the Lord that I am no longer as a Christian, needing to bear guilt or shame, that I am no longer as a Christian unable to conquer sin, that that sin that has dogged me for years, come on, sort yourself out. I can deal with it. We're not talking perfection. We're talking the power over it. Progress, progress. And as a church, well, I know what the devil's going to do. But the Bible tells me that Redeemer has God on its side. And that church will be established and that church will be stable. That church will be united. And that church will reach out with the gospel. And that wonderful phrase in chapter 6, verse uh, uh, 10, Johnny persuaded me to change my paraphrase of it this week to the actual words in the Bible, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's a great phrase for us to take into the week, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, let me... uh, Where are we? 11.42. Seven or eight more minutes and we're done. Let me just ease us into a description of what the devil's flaming darts are. And then we'll just trail where we'll return to next time. Now, the devil is the father of lies. This is where preaching on this becomes difficult because the devil's flaming dark. Well, people say it's anything. Now, I know it's anything, but let's try and be specific. The devil is the father of lies. His greatest tactic with us is to lie about stuff like who we are, our identity as individuals and as a church. He lies about the reality of spiritual warfare. Wouldn't it be great if you went home and you had a chat over lunch And you said, gosh, he was quite enthusiastic this morning. In fact, he was sweating up there. It's quite convincing, all that stuff about spiritual warfare, but it's just emotional hype. It's not true. Who told you that? Who whispered that in your ear? Who said it's not real? Not the Bible. Lies about God's power. How do you think about God's power? Power. Why do we think about power? Power is, well, Boris Johnson. Power. That's power. It is power. It's proper power. Big power. How do you think about God's power? Do you look at some worldly category of power and there from 
that, extrapolate what God's power is like. The most powerful thing on earth, God's a little bit bigger. That's not the way to think about God's power. God's power is immeasurably greater than anything we can think of. Think of God's power in and of itself. Not by bouncing off some category of human power. The devil says God is not powerful. He's not powerful. He will not plant churches all over this country. I was chatting to somebody in uh, East Asia this week. And they're involved in encouraging preaching groups. So ministers gathering together to encourage each other in their preaching. In their ministry, they are looking after 1,200 preaching groups. And each one of these groups has a mandate to plant two new ones every year. Now that's God's power. It's unstoppable power. It's the kind of power, perhaps, that we need to believe in. I will believe in more and more as things get tougher and harder here. The devil lies about sin. And the devil lies about suffering. What's the devil's lies about sin? Number one, that your sin is not forgiven. Unless we are crystal, crystal clear as to what the Bible says, we will not believe that we are forgiven sinners. Number two, the devil lies about guilt. He keeps goading us with that grievous sin that is grievous. So we wouldn't tell people in the past, you should feel guilty. You should be ashamed. This will dog you. This will dog you. He lies about sin, forgiveness, guilt. And he lies about sin in the Christian life. And he says, look, it doesn't matter if you sin in the Christian life. Oh, yes, it does. Temptation's not real and powerful. When you sit down at night with a remote control, this is to guys in the room. Half 11 at night, everyone's gone to bed. You have the remote control or in your study with a computer, whatever. Who's behind that? Temptation is powerful and real. The devil says you can't grow as a Christian. You can't be united as a church. You can't become mature. These are the devil's flaming darts and suffering. And we'll get to this over the next couple of weeks. God cannot love you. He can't love you. Just look what's happening in your life. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care. And these darts are flaming darts. It's not like a, a, a Robin Hood, you know, arrows. With pitch on the end. Fire on them. Think of a, the arrow of temptation when it takes root in my heart. With fire on it. My fallen nature is very combustible. Spreads. Two people in a church that fall out. It's like a flaming dart. Fire spreads. 
Now, we are to take up the shield of faith. What does that mean? Well, we'll come back to this next week. It's hard to know what it means. Yeah, what does it mean? I don't want you to go home thinking of some great big massive shield that you walk around with because I'm not really sure what that means. Okay, what is, what is the shield? The shield is referred to once in the New Testament. One reference to shield in the New Testament, just one. Here it is. 75 in the Old Testament, 60 of which refer to the shield as the Lord. Take up the Lord. That's your shield. The Lord Jesus living in you by his spirit. That's your shield. It's not me, Jesus there, and the devil's darts. It's Jesus in me and the devil's darts. It's Jesus Christ all over this community of faith against the devil's darts. Jesus is the shield. So what's faith or taking up? What does that mean? And let's close with this. How does Ephesians use faith? What does it mean by faith? Just look with me back at chapter 1, verse 15. The prayer, there are two prayers in Ephesians. Here's one. For this reason, chapter 1, 15, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. Because I have heard of your living faith, there's nothing more for you to do in life. He's not saying that. He's saying, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you, my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. Now, you're already Christians, but he's praying that you will have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know in your mind what is the hope to which he has called you, what is the riches of his glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great mind. Faith in the Christian life is deepening our knowledge of Jesus Christ, who he is, what it means that he lives in us, such that we will appreciate the immeasurable power of his might that is at work within us. We need to know in our minds and in our hearts who we are. And therefore we live. And lastly, chapter 3, verse 14, the other prayer for this reason. This is after Paul has revealed what the church is, the manifold display of the wisdom of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. In other words, because of who you are, Chalmers Church, because you are united, because you are one new person in Christ, because you are the revelation of my wisdom to this community and to all the forces of evil in the heavenly realm, for that reason, for that reason, I'm on my knees praying for you that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The devil's great tactic for us as a church, is that we will not know the compass, the breadth, the length of the love of God in Christ, that we will might. Taking up the shield of faith, I think, means growing in our knowledge of 
who we are in Christ. So what's the take-home in the beginning of this series? Come on a Sunday. If you find yourself not able to be here on a Sunday, ask why. And ask who is whispering in your ear, it doesn't matter. Go to your small group. It's worth the risk of legalism, isn't it? Meet up with someone. Grow in your knowledge of Jesus. That's how we endure, persevere, and extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Let's pray. Our Father, we have just got back into this material this morning. And we pray that as a church family, we would be ever so conscious. And as individuals, that we would be ever so conscious of the devil's flaming darts rained upon us. Lies about who we are, about warfare, lies about how powerful you are, lies about sin, lies about suffering, and darts that are dipped in pitch with burning flames, for we are combustible. Lord, help us to understand what it means to take out the shield of faith that we can extinguish all his flaming darts. And we think that means help us really see this over the coming weeks. It means growing in our knowledge of who we are in Jesus. And next week, Lord, as we look at the helmet of salvation, what does it mean to be saved? Knowing that in mind and heart, living like that every day, what a difference it makes to us as a church. Lord, help us to have a spirit of seriousness about these things. And protect us. Protect Redeemer and its leaders. For Jesus' sake. Amen.